Nice. Hey, there? Yes, hey, sir. Yes. Good. This thing's pretty cool. We are live, so. At uh, your uh, channel? Yeah, it's posting to William Ramsey Investigates on YouTube. Yeah, it's just wanna tur- Do you want to turn on your cam? You don't have to. Yes, I was. There are already uh, some people in here, so. Yeah, I, I thought I had my, I did turn on my camera. Okay, well, maybe I'm doing okay, something wrong. hold on. I'm probably doing something wrong. Okay. Yeah, it should be on. Let me see. Also, when you get a chance, email me the link to your YouTube channel for this live feed because I I don't see it in there. Hey Lee, how's it oh, going? Oh wait, right there, right there. It just showed up. Never mind. Okay. Lee, how are you? Shane, how are you? If you're there, Lime Juice from Scotland. You have a fan already, Ken. Plandemic. And Barbara from Canada. Nice, but I don't know why your um, camera camera's not working. It's got to be something it, on my side. It's on on my end, so there's got to be a little. Tr- okay, uh, just turn off your mic. Yeah, I'm back on. Solo layout, exit solo layout. So everybody listening live, we're starting this the way 99% of all live streams begin. <laughs> Well, it's me. It's 100% my fault. I kind of think that you might actually have. Oh, no, that's me. Wait. Oh, there you go. Okay, there we go. Victory. All right. Good to see you. Okay. Misty Miners here, Lee Veldman. This is my story, Washington State. So we've got a lot of uh, things going on. Anyway, we're going to do today. Are you ready to get started, Ken? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. This is the book Ken just wrote. This is out in October, guys. Hopefully, this is being recorded on YouTube. So this is the first time I've used um, StreamYard. Anyway, Ken and me and I go way back, tons of years. He was a fel- kind of fellow researcher into the West Memphis Three, like at least six or seven years ago, maybe eight now. But we've done tons of interviews. But we're going to talk about this book um, today. If you guys have any questions about the book, too, please uh, feel free to add them once we kind of get done with the preliminary stuff. But just published this month, Raised by Wolves, War of the World Views, an examination of season one of the Aaron Guzikowski and Ridley Scott show by Ken Ami, one of his many books. So you can check out his books at truefreethinker.com, uh, where he has a repository of all his writings, articles. You can find his books and purchase them through there. Um, anyway, so I'm delighted to have him on the show. I've read through the book. I have not seen the show. So, uh, but uh, I think his book has a lot of visuals, so it kind of helped me kind of grasp what was going on. So anyway, Ken, why don't you take it from here? For people who don't know about you, why don't you uh, maybe just go back through a little bit of your uh, past history and the stuff you write about and then what led you to this particular book? Well, interestingly enough, I was writing a book and I decided to take a little break from it to write a different book. <laughs> That's how much I write. <laughs> I know. I kind of I can identify with that. But yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the thing is, this book, I was writing reviews episode by episode. So at the end of the season, I was like, okay, great. I'm almost done already. I just have to compile it, everything, and make it look nice and pretty. And I, like you said, add the visuals and such and um, pull it all together. So... Um, I definitely enjoy writing books, written a ton of them, and um, basically ranging from theological issues to, I guess you could call it cultural commentary, such as when I deal with movies, which I don't review in terms of uh, the cinematography or the acting or stuff like that. that. That stuff is not really what interests me. It's always the Voltenschauen, right? The the worldview behind it, the philosophy, the messages, and all of that stuff is what it really interests me. And so this um, series I found to be really fascinating right off the bat, if for no other reason that it was pitched to Ridley Scott, right, because he is not only a director, but he, he has his own production company. So Guzizowski pitched the idea to Scott, and Scott liked it so much, he actually directed the first two episodes himself. 
So the way it works is somebody like Aaron um, comes up with the script and then a various directors will chime in throughout the season to direct different episodes. So that's kind of an interesting thing to do because the storyline is consistent, but the style might be a little bit different here and there because it's different directors. So uh, I had uh, looked into Ridley Scott quite a bit already because I wrote a book reviewing the entire Alien Mythos franchise, along with the entire Predator franchise and how those two uh, ended up in the crossover movies. So, Right, and you referenced those in this book. The yes. titles of those are, I think it's uh, a, a, a Worldview Review of the Alien and Predator Mythos franchises, right? Right, right. And then, okay, sorry. I just wanted to make sure that people can also see that because I think it's important to reference Ridley Scott you can kind of see the similar worldview of him in this as well as his Alien series, sorry. Right. Well, and speaking of worldview, you see uh, Scott is an atheist. And so it's interesting he got hooked up with Aaron, and I'm going to call him Aaron because if not, I know I'll be uh, butchering his last name all night long. <laughs> okay. Gudkowski. Yeah. Let's see how so, it's spelled. Okay. It's a G-U-Z-I-K-O-W-S-K-I, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Aaron, I did not know about before this, but um, it turns out he's a former Catholic. Uh, isn't everybody? <laughs> and so it's really interesting that they um, came together on this project, and you can definitely see a lot of both of those worldviews and even more uh, tied into the the background story for this show. Now, the the premise is that the world, the Earth, has been devastated by battles between atheists and Mithraists, who are the two competing uh, world fusion regimes on Earth, atheists and Mithraists. And that alone is fascinating because Mithraism is something most people have not ever heard about. I know well, maybe that. Uh, yes, you, go ahead. Could you do like a like a introductory explanation of Mithraism? Do you know? I know a little bit about it. Well, I think that the most readily accessible things to mention is that those people who have heard of Mithraism generally hear through heard of it via a fake umentary called Zeitgeist. And Zeitgeist, Zeitgeist contains, contains a section that plays off of the idea of Jesus' mythicism or that Jesus is a composite character, a pagan copycat. And so it claimed that Christians took concepts from Mithraism and basically invented this Jesus character. Whereas after those claims were made, then, you know, real researchers came along and pointed out, no, no such thing is the case. In a lot of cases, the supposed similarities are literally just invented or made to just sound similar, right? So for instance, that Mithra was born of a virgin. Okay. Ah, well, see, they just borrowed that and said Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, but Mithras was born out of a rock. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, you could argue that hopefully that rock was a virgin, but it's not quite the same category <laughs> as being born of a woman who was a virgin, right? Right. And, you know, Mithra had 12 apostles and Mithras healed, healed people and died and resurrected. All this stuff that uh, real research turns out that if anything was being borrowed, it was in the other direction. It was the Mithraists borrowing from Christianity. So Mithraism is really a cult, a mystery religion that came about in the early centuries A.D., which is... Right pretty much when it died, essentially, is in the early centuries A.D. True, and I think that one of the, uh, I can't remember which one, but one of the Roman emperors during a battle was a Mithraist, 
in the first or second century. So and before he went into battle, I remember this, they had this Mithraistic uh, thing where they venerate the bull and right. really graphic paganism, but they take the bull and he's under the bull and they ritually sacrifice the bull and the blood poured over him before he went into battle. So really kind of graphic. Yeah. So I, I, right. So I have to go get that exact reference, but I'm pretty sure that so Mithraism was around during the time of Christ or of Christ. The, yeah, the I mean, there, shortly thereafter, I don't know if I would say shortly, but it's definitely. Um, well, the thing is, the, one of the confusing things is that it's it's correlated to Zoroastrianism, right? Zoroaster, aka Zarathustra. Uh, which is much, 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 much older than um, the time of Jesus. But it's not as if there's some kind of direct correlation to it. In fact, uh, Mithra, the term, the name, the concept, the person, doesn't appear in Zoroastrian uh, texts. It's, it's just somehow loosely related. But yeah, it's definitely datable to uh, after Jesus. Right. And so it is interesting that um, they would pull out such an obscure cult uh, from the pages of history and proclaim a future. And by the way, the show is set, I mean, maybe 150 years into the future, really not that much further right. along. I think they said 2145. That's when it begins, yeah. And then it jumps ahead a few years. Um, so it, it's interesting that they would pick such an obscure cult and turn it into the world religion, you know, matched only by atheism. So that's a really interesting that the, one of the chief counterfeits of Christianity is said to be the main world, world religion. And part of it, I think the reason for using Mithraism, it, it seems to function quite often in the show as a stand in whereby to besmirch Christianity but you don't have to be they don't have to be that blunt, right? They can just say no, we're just poking at Mithraism. Who cares, right? right. <laughs> There's not many Mithraists around nowadays that would get offended by that. Um, except incidentally, um, you know how I sent you the book and then I said, you know what? I updated it, so I gotta send you the new version. Right. Well, I updated it again, So, but I didn't want to keep sending you new versions because then you would never finish reading it by today. So I will send you the newer one where I included information about how, for instance, um, the Blumberg um, European headquarters, right? Mike, Michael Blumberg, okay, mm -hmm. um, who ran for president of the USA this time around and, you know, spend a few billion dollars to run for president for, what, two months or something? <laughs> Yep, get some fame, yeah. Uh, he's got a, yeah, his company has a UK headquarters. And what they did is at the foot of the building, they dug a gigantic trench in, in, uh, whereby or wherein they rebuilt an ancient Mithraist site. Wow. <laughs> and wow. so what they did is they, they, they gathered uh, together all the implements they could find, the wood um, that was left, the, the stone and everything. And they moved it to the location and they set it up um, like a styled museum, really. And so now, and incidentally, all this Mithraism stuff was generally done underground in a cave, all right? So the, one of the reports states that if you go there, the Bloomberg European headquarters, this was inaugurated in 2017, if you go there to visit, you descend through a steep black stone-lined stairs up to seven meters below the city streets. And it states that uh, Mithra was beloved of soldiers who worshipped him by the light of flaming torches in underground temples where the blood of sacrificial animals soaked into the mud floor. Okay, so I think I can pull this up. Let me see if I can pull do this. Well, no, that's from the. Uh, you mean in my book? No, I can pull in the the London Mithraism. Let me see if I can do this. Share yeah, screen. I have it from theguardian.com, Incidentally, okay, I could shoot you the link if you want. Let's see. Strange. 
So I'll, I'll read meanwhile. Okay, please go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm no, not at all. It's just that um, this is basically what you'll be greeted with if <laughs> if okay, you want to visit there. It was supposedly, okay. uh, it was dated to 240 AD that the Romans built a temple. Yeah, right. so there's a typical image of Mithra killing the sacred bull, right? Right, and this is fairly recent. Uh, 2017. Yeah. Let's see if we can find any other pictures. So, I mean, there's people who are a lot more interested in Mithraism than we would have, might have imagined. So what happens is if you go, you descend, right? I mean, this is just think of the spiritual and ritualistic overtones. You're descending into a place of darkness, seeking light of the torches, right? Which symbolically referred to enlightenment. And it says... The soundtrack of shuffling sandaled feet and voices chanting in Latin the names of the levels of initiates taken from graffiti on a temple in Rome. So, I mean, it's a feast for the senses, right? Your, your eyes have to adjust. And, and as you're entering this uh, ritual site, they're playing out loud. Uh, the names of uh, the levels of initiates. So as you're entering the site, it's like you're undergoing, I call it a subconscious initiation ritual, a subtle unconscious initiation ritual. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah, it's right there, right in the mix of things in London, yeah. Yeah. Then another thing I encountered is uh, something to do with our good old little old buddy, uh, Alistair Crowley. Dun, dun, dun. Let's go. There he goes. His name pops up okay. all over the place. Yeah. Now, uh, most people know about Baphomet, right? Um, I, think I think fewer so. people. Yeah. So Crowley ends up claiming through his typical etymological and numerological machinations, right? He ends up claiming that Baphomet actually means father of Mithra. Oh, interesting. Didn't know that. <laughs> Not surprised. Yeah. So, I mean, you have all kinds of interesting uh, tie-ins Intr- here. To right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I don't know if the elites are trying to tell us that this is <laughs> the wave of the future or what, but it's, it's just fascinating to me that they would have picked something so obscure and turned it into a world of religion. I agree, but aren't the elites kind of resurrecting or or bringing back all of these old things, not just Mithraism, but Baal arches in New York City and yeah, Moloch, right? Yeah. Um, Now, some of you may know of the uh, Christian named Tertullian, who lived one sixty to two forty A.D., and he referred to soldiers of Mithras who at his initiation in the gloomy cavern in the camp, it may be said of darkness. So he was aware of what they were doing and where they were doing it. And then Jerome 342 to 420 AD wrote of the grotto of Mithras and all the dreadful images therein by which the worshipers were initiated as soldiers. And that's part of the interesting thing is that within the show, the Mithraists, at least the ones we meet, are soldiers. Hmm. So it's very well in keeping with that uh, they would be Mithraists. And and I went ahead and, okay, so really Mithra is sort of an, 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 a supposed incarnation type of person, whereas the God is actually soul right? The sun, S-O-L. So I started writing in my book in terms of soldiers, S-O-L dash D-I-E-R, right? So it makes sense that they're soldiers. They're literally soul dyers. Interesting, right? And soul is like a concept that's integrated through the whole show, all 10 episodes, right? Or something. Right. Right. Well, I know, Definitely. Because one of the characters starts thinking that soul is speaking to him. It gets a little complex, so let's kind of work our way there. Um, One of the main features of the show, 
Um, okay, so again, the earth is in, uninhabitable, right? And so atheists take off in one direction, Mithraists take off in the other direction, and inevitably they meet. So what happens is that uh, a person who's called the atheist hacker, whose name is uh, Campion, he he um, entraps a Mithraist android. Okay, so the main feature of this show is androids. And so you could really say that this show is just a side story from Ridley Scott's Alien franchises. Because he's, you know, he's been at it for so long. He said he really has been wanting to move away from the xenomorph, right? The actual alien and focus more on the AI, the artificial intelligence and androids. And this show could just be a sideline to that whole myth mythos. So the, the Mithraists have created androids. So they're artificially intelligent. And they end up claiming that the way they figured out how to do this is by decoding uh, certain cryptic codes that they found within their own scriptures, which is uh, really, really fascinating to me uh, on various levels, because it's the good old trope of a lot of ancient cultures that, well, we receive knowledge from, and then you fill in the blank, you know, the gods or angels or demons or aliens, uh, this knowledge, this wisdom, right, this from without. And so they created these androids, uh, which they call necromancers. <laughs> right. Right. But okay. isn't like they call the androids, one is mother, one is father, but both they're not both the same type of android, right? Or Well, or well you see, um, well, necromancer, okay, in real life, it refers to people who claim to be able to communicate with the dead. In this case, it's necromancer because they are basically um, weapons of mass destruction. Okay, so the but these were Mithraist androids. What the atheist does is he captures one of them and reprograms it, and he reprograms it to be a mother figure. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, whereas the other android is uh, a basic service model, but he's made to be a father figure. Gotcha. Okay, and now. This brings us instantly into something that's emphasized by Aaron and by the actors, and it's very open, which is that they refer to these androids as being androgynous. Whereas outwardly, they are male and female, but they're androids, so they're really neither. It's just that they one has been programmed to function more like a male, and one has been programmed to function more like a female. And incidentally, that's one of the tropes in the show, is the, the clash of uh, the traditional gender roles because it does turn out since father is a basic service model android and mother, we come to find, is also a necromancer. So she has many more capabilities than he does and that keeps coming up that she thinks of father like, oh, okay, you know, he's kind of useful and he's funny sometimes because... Uh, one of the amusing things about the show is that father likes to tell dad jokes, you know, <laughs> uh, but that, that is an issue. And it's uh, so it's, it's very much. Okay. So I wrote a book called the occult roots of post genderism. And most of the book is just quotations from all kinds of occult texts, which, which talk about how the uh, ultimate God and the original human was androgynous or hermaphroditic, uh, and that they view the the separation of the genders or the sexes as being uh, disunifying, right? And so what they're foreseeing is a future where the genders or the sexes will come together again into so that each one of us will become dual gendered, so androgynous or hermaphroditic. So what you see going on in, in our culture and really around the world um, is a, an enormous occult ritual. Now, I'll grant you, there's a lot of different issues tied into it. There's um, genetic issues. There's cultural issues. There's uh, biochemical issues. There's all, it's like an art of war. 
it, it's it's a combination of a lot of very complicated issues. But this is part of it, which is the 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 occult desire to return to what they claim is our primeval state of perfect unity, and it's a combination of, of gender or sexes, and so that's why you say, okay, there's a mother and a father, but they're not really either. It's just that they've been arbitrarily programmed to be that way. Right. And that's how it plays out in this show, Raised by Wolves, right? Right. Which is an interesting title in itself, yeah. It is. And so what the atheist did is he packed a spacecraft with mother and father and a bunch of uh, embryos that they were just in storage, and he sent them off to Kepler-22b, which is a real planet. Okay, and so they arrived there, and Mother has the embryos attached to her torso, uh, very much like, uh, you know, piglet style. <laughs> um, and they're literally feeding off of her as they grow. So it's it's kind of an interesting transhumanist thing there where she's able to have human beings growing being and essentially being nurtured and fed through a, an Android body. Right. So meanwhile, the uh, Mithraists are flying around in their spacecraft that they call the Ark of Heaven. And there's uh, about a thousand of them in, in the craft. And eventually what happens on the planet is they found um, that there's absolutely gigantic skeletons of apparently extinct serpents. And I'm just telling you that the symbolism in the show is off the charts, all right? Now, wherever these serpent bones are, these plants grow. And from those plants grow this stuff that they call carbos that is edible. But it, it ends, ends up that uh, it turns out that as this fruit matures, it actually becomes radioactive, so all the kids start dying, except one of them, by the way, and we don't really know why yet. Even at the end of the season, we're not sure why he's able to survive where the other kids all die off. But never fear, because uh, Mithra is... Okay, so Father is so concerned about this that he sends a signal to the Mithra's ship once he realizes that they're flying around up there and uh, a group comes down to Mithraists, and Mother's pretending to be a human because, you know, she looks exactly like a human. But they kind of start figuring out, you know what, I think she's an android. And um, they start thinking that the boy who is able to survive eating the irradiated food, he might be uh, the fulfillment of one of their Mithras prophecies. So they want to take him with them back to the Ark of Heaven and that's when a big old fracas breaks out, right? Because mother definitely doesn't want that to happen. And then we learn um, that mother can just transform into necromancer form, where she all of a sudden looks very metallic. Uh, her eyes change, and she loves to, when, whenever necromancers fly, they fly in this position, in, in crucifix position. I mean, I'm telling you that all the symbolism's off the charts. And uh, she's able to y just yell out a uh, banshee-like yelp that just causes people to literally explode. She makes it onto the ship and, you know, murders a bunch of the Mithraists, but she finds the chamber where the children are. Okay, and what's interesting is before going in there, she puts a blindfold on, right, which is typically uh, of Freemasonic rituals indicating I'm in darkness and I seek light. Uh, within the show, technically she's doing it because she's afraid that uh, she might, oh, you know, cause all the kids to explode <laughs> through her necromancer um, powers. But she gets all the kids, takes them back to the planet with them, and there you go. Now she has a new batch of children she can mother. Uh, meanwhile, she causes the, the, the Ark to crash into the, into the planet, kills thousands of, you know, at least a thousand people, and then there's a few survivors. And so basically a lot of things start happening, such as um, 
we see the Mithraist displaying a lot of uh, interesting imagery. The show is full of uh, pentagrams and pentacles and pentagons. Tetrahedrons, all kinds of, yeah, numerologically important, you know, uh, sizes or shapes, I should say. All kinds. Even something as blunt as one of the Mithraist clergy women has on her hand a tattoo of a square and compass from Freemasonry, just straight up, just like that. So and they so, knew what I mean, they were doing, whoever, the Gudikowski oh, or whatever. He knows exactly. Absolutely. He's trying to integrate all that stuff. And there's kind of like 2001 themes that kind of felt like with the the advent of the baby and everything at the end. It just made me think, right, of like the star child at the end of 2001. Well, and even more so in 2001, you have the monolith. And in this show, you have uh, what they call the temple. They're basically walking across a desert on that planet one day, and all of a sudden they find this object, right? Remember that? the uh... Right, a big, huge tetrahedron temple and stuff. Even some of the imagery, I think that they borrowed some of the imagery from uh, oh, the guy that I wrote about in Children of the Beast to Kanye West really likes, what's his name? Uh, Yodorowsky. You ever seen some oh. of Yodorowsky's? Yeah, some of the visuals are very oh, yeah. similar. Where like there's a lone man on top of a huge kind of posing figure. It seems yeah. Like so the, this this thing they find it's made out of uh, combined stones, and it's it's technically a pentagonal dodecahedron. <laughs> um, you got it right. And, That's good. Yeah, and they find that uh, because it's. On the side of the planet where they are, the, winter, uh, the nights are very cold, but they find this thing's em- emitting heat. And there's a hole, there's an opening to it. But, I mean, it's pretty small. Um, so that one time they put a stick in there and it comes out burning. And uh, so they have no idea really what this thing is yet. That They just know it's there. <laughs> and that it, it, it emits heat on it, on, usually emits heat Um Although it doesn't, for some time it doesn't uh, until, I oh mean, there's just so much. It's, it's hard for me to know in which direction to go. But would, would you say that, that these, just to, just to interject, would you say the Mithraists within the, the show are also almost like a cultist? There's all kinds of occult ritualized things and elements that seems like that. They, they're kind of like esoteric in a way. Would you agree with that? They are, but not only them, even Mother. Okay, now that's something I should mention. Um, Mother was not only programmed to be a mother figure, her and father were both programmed to have an atheistic worldview. They were programmed to be that way, and that's how they teach their kids. You know, they teach them to be atheists. But Mother is regularly seen doing things that are very ritualistic. Uh, meditative, uh, all kinds of things that would seem uncharacteristic. And we don't really understand what she's doing yet. But so even her, so the the whole show is like a combination of all kinds of esotericism, definitely Gnosticism, occultism. Shifting, symbolism. And combined, again, okay, so I always say that transhumanism inevitably contains three key features, high-tech, evolution, and occultism. And that's all over this show. I mean, it's, it's all over. Um, even when they're showing the lab where the atheist hacker was programming mother, there's stained glass windows uh, showing the all-seeing eye in the pyramid. I mean, it's all just so out there, uh, out there in the open, I should say. <laughs> right. And I mean, I, this just came out October. I think it, it dropped just this month, right? If I the, remember, the season just closed. The season, oh, yeah, it just finished a few weeks ago. Okay. It's a brand new, yeah. It's, it's absolutely brand new. Brand new. So, um, when you kind of were about thirty-five minutes, when you, what's your kind of like overarching takeaway? What do you think that these guys are putting? Two questions. Do you think these guys are intentionally putting these kind of Easter eggs, or what do they call them? in the show to elicit interest or a response from the viewer more over than just the general narrative of the, of the fictional arc of the story. Now, 
we both know that that is uh, one of the things that people like us are asked to think about and deal with. And ultimately, we can't say, right? Ultimately, we can just kind of observe and give our best approximation, but we don't know their motivations. We don't know their hearts. We don't know what they're talking about behind the scenes. But we can see, for example, Ridley Scott's body of work and see the direction in which he's been moving, which is an atheist uh, an atheist worldview overlaid with concerns or uh, fascinations with artificial intelligence. And incidentally, I don't see why you can't be an occultist and an atheist. If you just think that occult energies or powers are not by, given by some kind of a god, but they're, they're just naturally occurring like electricity or anything else, right? Um, and so why not, even if you are an atheist, also be an occultist uh, and, right. and play with these ideas? But then again... It, we would have to believe them, right? Like when Scott says, well, I'm, I'm just an atheist. Okay. Uh, do, is there an ethic coming along with that that would require you to tell us the truth? I mean, I don't know. It's, But I, I would think that um, the way they're um, – this show seems to be more than about being attention-getting because it's deeply occultic uh, to the point where – I'll just review this very, very quickly and ruin the end of the season for you. <laughs> yeah, I should have said at the beginning, uh, this is going to be tons of spoilers. I should have said yeah. that to everybody. So my apologies. <laughs> um, that should just be expected, you know. Um, but It's too late so, now. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. So <laughs> what happens is that Mother finds that part of the Mithra is craft has survived enough that she can go into this uh, chamber that allows her to hook up to a virtual reality program, essentially. And she finds that she's been able to tap in to, um, re to repressed memories within her own program. Okay. So, so there you have this whole angle of uh, MK ultra and uh, amnesia walls because right. the atheist programmer wanted her to be able to forget a lot of what she's been through. So when she uh, arrives at this planet, she can just be, hey, I'm, I'm mother, and here I go. I'm off being a mother. Well, she ends up accessing all these memories, including that um, however much we could say that an android feels things or loves, that's how it comes across. She really loved this uh, atheist, who she calls her creator, by the way, uh, which is interesting because – no, technically, he didn't create her. He just found her and reprogrammed her. That's a very different concept. But but think about the, the theology behind thinking of him as her creator. And then um, she's in love with, with him. She does not want to leave him, which is part of the reason he blanked her memory, because it would have been too painful for her. And he couldn't go with them, incidentally, because he was dying of whatever disease he had. And so... It ends up happening that within this memory simulation, she's able to interact with him in real time, much like, um, you know, Superman's Fortress of Solitude, where, where Superman's father is deceased. But the artificial intelligence in the Fortress of Solitude makes it so that he can interact in real time. OK, so they end up engaging in a um, carnal concubines, right? They end up mating. Um, right in the center of this huge floor relief of a Mithraist, uh, I call it a zodiac. It's some kind of Mithraist circle with all kinds of imagery, and they they mate right then and there. Uh, with her having a vision of the ceiling opening and light emitting wow, and yeah. uh, raining white, white liquid on them. Uh, I mean, the, again, it's off the charts. And so the android ends up pregnant. Okay. Now, at oh, the very so end of the yeah. season, she gives birth. Um, she gives birth out of her mouth, incidentally. Again, very uh, alien movie, right? right. With the uh, face hugger uh, implanting the, you know, okay. Um, she gives birth to a serpent. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, she gets right, so, And you see all of that kind of or early first chapter Genesis 
symbolism Absolutely. throughout the whole thing. No question Trini, about it. Two men, two people together. All of that theme seems yeah, to the, because that's the point. Is these are supposed to be the new Adam and the new Eve, right. straight up. And, and so, in fact, there's constant talk of them seeking to move to the tropical side of the planet. So that's speculated to be the new Eden. Interesting. Uh, but but what ends up happening is that mother realizes she's not actually been interacting with her atheist creator, of course, but not even really a reconstruction of him. She calls it a virus. She says, oh, you're not really him. You're a virus. So it ends up, she doesn't know, neither do we, how she got pregnant or who impregnated her. So it's a styled virgin birth by we don't know what. Something that managed to impregnate an android and who then gives birth to a serpent. I mean, hello. <laughs> I'm telling you. So now, one of the, Please continue. Yeah. The main thing that struck me is, um, okay, so Gnosticism varies quite a bit. But bottom line would be that there's a, a um, um, overall God, a Deus Absconditus, right? And an unknown God. Um, who then creates lesser gods, and then one of those lesser gods creates the material realm. But meanwhile, there's a being called Sophia, who, without the, uh, without copulating with her cohort, she takes it upon herself to create this lesser God who then she envelops in a cloud. So this God thinks, Oh, I'm the only thing that exists. I'm going to create a material realm. And that's supposed to be the guy of the Bible. That's why Gnosticism despises the Bible so much because it, it literally takes any biblical doctrine and turns it inside out, upside down and backwards. Right. And so this, to, this to me was part of what this show was about. What this was this unknown entity um, impregnating Sophia and then her giving birth to this serpent, which, by the way, can fly because it's partly uh, since it's born out of mother. She's a necromancer. and She can fly. They then it inherited this ability. So, I mean, it's just. But I think I'm that's a great you. point because it feels like the whole thing is Gnostic. It has that. Absolutely. Element. Absolutely. So it's basically, kind of yeah. It's basically a, a Gnostic high-tech retelling of the Bible after, um, you know, they always say Satan does what God does, but he he uh, does it in a corrupt, a copy but corrupt manner, right? And that that's really what it is. It's just done. It's just done in a in a very interesting way within a sci-fi show that's that's well done and well written. And just absolutely saturated with all kinds of stuff that you could spend time uh, looking into and digging up. Would you, I mean, you know a lot about Ridley Scott. Would you agree that this show kind of has that kind of the universe is a very kind of dark, hyper cold, you know, random kind of death feel to it that Alien does or the Alien mythos does? Alien absolutely had that. Um, You could almost say... um, Alien was all about, well, you know this very well, the old Crowleyan concept that the universe is a big joke, right? Right. And hence the smiley face within an occult context. And then it's all about... smiley face in this show, too. They put that in there. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And then uh, it's all about mommy and daddy issues. (laughs) And it's all about birth and abortions. Right? So... In this show as well, um, the Mithraists believe that there's a god, but the atheists don't. So how are you supposed to know which is which? Because you only have two major worldviews and they differ. So you don't really know which one of them is right within this mythos. Except that, and let me run through this very quickly. So back on Earth, two atheist soldiers realize that they're about to, to get busted and that the Ark is going to leave Earth, and they want to get on there so they can survive. So they find an android who performs plastic surgery on them, a a medical model android, uh, to make them look exactly like these two uh, Mithra soldiers whom they blow away. 
And so now they can pretend to be these two Mithras soldiers where really they're atheists. And what's interesting, incidentally, is the name of the atheists are Caleb and Mary, which are two biblical names. But when they're the Mithraists, their names are Marcus and Sue. So I found that interesting, interesting that the atheist name were biblical, but the Mithraist ones weren't. And so there's this very complicated plot is coming about where Marcus, okay, Caleb, who is viewed as being Marcus, begins to hear voices. And then he starts thinking, wow, I think Saul is speaking to me. And so he's praying all of a sudden, which is freaking out his wife, uh, Mary Sue, because all of a sudden her hardcore militant atheist husband is praying, right? What's all this about? Right. And he's he's feeling like maybe he's the fulfillment of the, the affirmation, our aforementioned prophecy, uh, which, by the way, the Mithras called a pentagonal prophecy. So, <laughs> right, so there's even more. Right? I mean, unbelievable. It's just really... Um, really unbelievable. Um, so one thing that happens towards the end of the season is the other Mithra is figure out that this isn't really Marcus. This this is somebody else, and somehow he's faking us out. And they beat him to a pulp. And uh, another very long story short, they had uh, okay. Talk about symbolism. The way that Mother can trans- transform into the necromancer is because of her eyes. Right. So when she wants everyone to make sure that they're safe around her and she's not accidentally going to blow everybody up, she removes her eyes and then she puts on regular eyes that she stole from another android she destroyed. And so think about that. (laughs) The eyes, right? The enlightenment. That's how she becomes the the necromancer. They end up stealing those eyes from her and the Mithraist end up shoving them down uh, Caleb's throat. So there, there's something going on there with Kayla reaching this ultimate enlightenment and now thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm the prophet of soul now. I think that's what's happening. So it's I'm telling you. <laughs> it's remarkable. It's just really kind of dark Gnosticism in that. But oh, I, yeah. Yeah. So people be uh, warned if you watch this show. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of seeing that. But also, I think that's something that you're seeing Rid- Ridley Scott's worldview and you said he was an atheist. I have an interesting story. Like I know somebody who worked at his production company. Oh, interesting. He had the some kind of tattoo of H.R. Geiger right after he passed away. He was involved in creating the alien uh, or Giger, as you would say in Europe or something like that. But it was all over, and she just loved. I mean, she was in the right spot. I got to tell you, she she was willing to put that tattoo of Geiger right on her. You could just wow. yeah yeah, it was crazy. Anyway, interesting story. Um, do, you, do you mind taking a few questions before we wrap well, this up? If you do, you have anything you'd like to just is it, to put the kind of bookend on this discussion? No, it's questions? just that this is okay. We don't know. They're planning like four or five seasons. This is only number one, and I feel like you, we just barely scratched the surface of how jam packed this is with uh, all kinds of. Uh, symbolism and implications and philosophy and worldview and occultism and you name it, you name it. Did you, did you find at the end of like season of episode 10 that they definitely left kind of cliffhangers to. Absolutely. Because again, we don't know who impregnated mother. We don't know what is happening. We know that. um, Oh, father took them on their little uh, shuttlecraft and attempted to, um, he wanted them all to die, mother, father, and the serpent baby, because they were afraid the serpent would end up harming their children. Uh, But so he goes down this huge tunnel into what he thinks is going to be the middle of the planet, and they're just going to blow up. But all of a sudden, as they're about to hit this gigantic uh, pool of lava in the center of the planet, all of a sudden, they're actually uh, not descending anymore. They're actually ascending through another hole in the planet, and they're flying up in the sky. And what they do is they jump out of the craft because they're androids. I mean, they're going to get damaged, but they won't die. And the serpent ends up crashing within the craft to the planet. And so we don't know where they are. Uh, we know the serpent survived because thereafter it makes its way out of the shuttle 
and all of a sudden it's uh, about as big as a tree and it mm-hmm. just floats off, you know, the uh, Quetzalcoatl, right? The flying serpent. Um, right. So again, yeah, the, there's tons of mystery and things about which we don't know. So they're definitely setting it up for more seasons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And again, the book is Raised by Wolves, War of the Worldviews, an examination of season one of the Aaron Guzikowski and Ridley Scott show. Is there anybody who um, would have any questions or anything or anything for Ken? I saw some earlier questions, but if you can re-ask those in the chat, he said he'd be able to or willing to take some questions. But there it is. There's one. There's one comment. Great esoteric breakdown, Ken. Yeah, it's a it's a definitely a worthwhile read on the book. Definitely uh, you. gives you kind of a layout of what they're of all the occult elements or esoteric elements or Gnostic elements. Uh, if somebody also asked about Ken, Ken and I did a show. Well, he wrote the book on Genesis six and oh, yeah. stories about the Nephilim too. So people, oh, yeah. I would definitely recommend going to. Um, his website, www.truefreethinker.com. You can get those books. You can also see the interviews on my YouTube channel. Um, here we go. Here's a question for you from Sniff. Does Ken know anything about the conception of the philosophical child, which involves three men intercoursing with a dead ox? Do you know? Hey, uh, <laughs> want to pass that? Let's pass. All right. Well, um, it sounds to me like, Unless it's just a joke, um, they're probably touching upon some deeply occultic um, moon child type of stuff, if you know what I mean. Gotcha. And somebody said, uh, don't be getting down on Steve Quayle. <laughs> oh, okay. You know me well. You know me well. I mean, I guess uh, I figure that since I'm an author, um, I'm rightly offended as an author and a Christian that he would plagiarize somebody's book. But, hey, you know, he's the one that did it, not me. I'm just pointing it out. Didn't you reach out to him or ask for a comment and he didn't comment, right? Or well, you sent him something? Okay, so yeah, I emailed him a couple times, but the thing is when people don't reply to my emails, there's no way I can tell if they even got them. Right. Bottom line. Right. Now, if we're going back and forth and all of a sudden they stop replying, then I know they just don't want to discuss it anymore. But with Quail, I just don't know. I know that I reached out to him in a very friendly manner just to ask some generic questions about what was on his site and uh, okay well i tried i reached out and i could not get a hold of him so what can, can you, you? Re- please uh remind me what the title of that book is so that people can reference that it's genesis 6 i can't remember Do you oh, recollect on, offhand? yes on the genesis 6 affairs sons of god angels or not gotcha and somebody asked this question this is my story can Ken, please talk about the Giants, maybe a little introduction. Thank you. If it's all good, I'm getting the book. See, whatever that means. A little, huh? Talk a little about the uh, – notice it's they want me to talk about the Gaints. The, the what? Oh, the, the Giants. Gaints. Right, the Gaints, right. I and, and I'm, I'm not pointing that out to pick on you. I'm pointing that out because I'm dyslexic, so that's definitely something I would do. Um you know, it's hard to talk a little bit about the Giants because, first of all, I would have to ask, what do you mean by that? Because that's a vague, generic, subjective, and undefined term. That's an English word, and I can think of five or six different definitions of it. Uh, biblically, unfortunately, uh, some English versions render, I can't even say translate, render both Nephilim and Rephaim as giants. So that causes a lot of confusion because Nephilim are strictly pre-flood hybrids and Rephaim are strictly post-flood regular good old human beings. And there's absolutely no connection between them, bottom line. And really in the Hebrew Bible, there is no term, no English word for what we, I guess, generally would think of as giant. There's people who are called tall and there's people who are called very tall or of great stature, but think about it. Those are subjective terms straight up, right? Especially when you consider that that's being stated with reference to the Hebrews, uh, who in those days averaged, uh, males averaged five feet to five three. So, I mean, easily six, six and a half feet, seven feet would be uh, tall and very tall. You don't have to go far beyond that, nor does the Bible incidentally. 
So, yeah, it's hard to say a little bit, but bottom line, I would say when you're reading the word giant in an English Bible, recognize that Nephilim, the word, only appears in Genesis 6-4 and in Numbers 13-33. That's it. Any other time you're reading the word giant in an English Bible, it'll be rendering Rapha or Raphaim. So that that's something that's very, very important. Gotcha. And do you know anything about Michael Tsarian? Are you familiar with that? Oswald Spengler uh, Ass or whoever. Is this Richard? Is that Richard whatever his name is? Yeah, I, I've definitely run across that name quite a bit, but I'm afraid I have not looked into his works or research. No, sorry. Well, he left a really nasty review of Prophet of Evil, if that's any help. You can go see that on Amazon. He called me, I think he called me a bunch of naughty words or something. Like that. Uh, yeah. So anyway. That's, That's too bad. But he also wrote, I mean, there's I, there's a video of him really um, proclaiming his adoration for uh, Crowley and saying how much oh, he really okay. so, yeah. great. That would tell you a lot. Yeah. Well, that would tell yeah. you a lot, her. Yeah. Let me um, just throw something in because somebody just typed the word Goliath. Okay, Goliath it was not a Nephil, he was a Rapha. Um, so that's very important to note right there. And I'm not sure why he's being mentioned because, okay, if you see the word giant attached to Goliath, you'd need to understand it's just calling him a Rapha. It's, it's, it's merely expressing his nationality. It's not saying anything about his height. That's, that's what I'm saying is you can't just think of the word giant in terms of what we might mean today, especially uh, with all the fairy tales if it's been attached to, and then apply that to the Bible. Uh, Goliath is just being referred to as, as a Repha. Any other questions? Anybody have anything uh, they'd like to ask Ken? Again, his website's True Free Thinker. You can get the book, uh, Raised by Wolves. We'll see. Okay, the see. Of the world views at True Free Thinker. Yeah, I might have to see if... Um, you know, now people want to discuss the uh, giant issue, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's fascinating. But see, um, someone's saying Raphaim does ref- Raphaim does reference giants, but then that begs the question, what does giants mean? See, we haven't gotten past that yet. Example, Gilgar Raphaim means circle of giants. No, it means circle of Raphaim. That's what it means. So... You know, you can't put the cart before the horse. Uh, I mean, that's just the bottom line. Does Ken admire the work of Gary Wayne? Um, one of my latest Nephilim books, I've written like four or six of them, depends how you count them, is um, Nephilim and Giants as per pop researchers. And I go very carefully through the Gary Wayne material. And I'm afraid that he is a very good researcher. There's no question about it. He's done a tremendous amount of research, so his data points in his research are solid, but it's the way he connects them that's the problem. So, for instance, he teaches post-flood Nephilim, but the, the Bible does not. And uh, so, no, I think that a lot of his claims are very problematic. It's, it's unfortunate, but... That's just a fact, and I've, I've shown that many times. In fact, there's a few articles on my website that I wrote about Gary Wayne that explain this kind of stuff. Where's the link to your – I can't find the link to your books. Is there a specific link on your website? Where is that? Content? Well, yeah, just right at the top. You see where it says see here? You right. can purchase my books, paperback, Kindle version, see here, right in the middle, in the middle. Oh, gotcha. To- right. Towards the like, top. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. Yeah. And there's the, there's actually the title of his long book, Nephilim as Giants for Pop Researchers, and it includes the name of Gary Wayne. Yeah. So let's see. To get the book, Murder Cults with Gnostic Mithraic Rituals. I have no idea. Oh, Does you know interesting. About that? Murder Cults with Gnostic Mithraic Rituals. Is that... I think maybe they're asking if any of the uh, murder cults about which we would be aware seem to be correlated to Gnostic or Mithraic rituals. And, uh, well, I know that you've considered whether the smiley face killer phenomenon is ritualistic at bottom. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, no doubt. Some of them, I think for sure. In my opinion, I mean, I mean, what you've done, you've sent, you yourself have probably sent me uh, fifty <laughs> pictures from so many different types of yeah. <laughs> media of these things that I would never have found. But uh, it does. There's actually a smiley face that ties into your book about it. I mean, I think the kid draws us. Yes. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no. Uh, in in the original novel, Stephen King writes of a smiley smile face. So that, really? that's how far back it goes in King. Yeah. Wow, that's it's really in the cool. novel. It's in the actual novel, and then yeah, it appears in the movie in the first movie. Fascinating. You could almost do a whole documentary just showing the uh, the different images of the smiley face in movies, huh? It's true, hundred percent. You could do three hour. You could do a three hour documentary. You could do it super, <laughs> super, just incredibly long, especially in culture, all the clothing and stuff. It's ever it's so it's so prevalent, so common. Yeah. And it's just like some of these like this movie, they're clearly putting these symbols in films to is either like an Easter egg or just to right. see if they can in elicit fact, response. Why don't you go down to the books, the Necronomicon job? Because you remember what I did on the cover of those, right? Where is it down here? Yeah, just go down until you find it, uh Necronomicon job series. But yeah, that's one of the questions is, are these things in movies and shows? I'm sure some directors are putting them in there just because it's hip and cool and it'll get attention. And some of them, it's because they're really attempting to use them as sigils or uh, to send messages, you know. It's just you don't know on any given occasion um, who's doing what. We did a show on this sidecast. Yes. I think we did a show on post-genderism. Didn't we yes. do another show with that guy? There was another guest, or at least a book. Can we do that? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, Nicholas. Nicholas, yes. Yes. Yeah, he's the you only guy. Books. We did the article of Jesus as well. Sorry, Pedro. That's right. There it is. The next <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, you notice the cover there? Yeah. One of the great things about uh, Ken's books is they're all very precisely cited. So you can see exactly what he's reading. So, you know, sometimes you, you read these books, but just don't get the citations, what, right? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a researcher at heart, so I can't help but do that because that's just the way I'm wired. But if you notice there, go back to that for a second. Sure. That cover. Yeah. Yeah, you, if you notice that, uh, that's not actually a sigil. That's just a bunch of lines I put together to to make a pseudo sigil. But you notice it's a really a happy face, a smiley face. Right. And then I just threw in all that stuff to make it appear as if it's something it's, that's not. like Because, uh, of course, it's the Necronomicon job, right? We're being conned. Yes. Uh, let's see. There's a quite a researcher who did a bit on the process church that William may know of. Um, I think there was one on Opperman show who knew something about the process church. Uh, question. Have you read Horsley's book? What is it? The 16 maps of hell yet? I don't know. It's interesting. Um, it's a hot year for that, right? Uh, Jason Horsley putting out his book on Hollywood, The 60 Maps of Hell, and also Mark Dice just put out a book on Hollywood propaganda. Yes. You should. Um, uh, you, you might want to interview him for that. He talks about the propaganda aspect. I don't know. I don't know if he'd go on. I don't know. You never know. Some people I'm yeah, surprised. You agree. All you can do is ask. I just ask. Yeah. Some people are just yeah. throwing an email out into the uh, void. Some people respond. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, all my past shows with Ken are at William Ramsey Investigate. So you can go to YouTube, type that in. Should be there. I have a follow-up or a backup channel. That's just William Ramsey. So that's it. Yeah, Lee Veltman says Steve Hassan and Rick Allen Ross. Yeah, Rick Allen Ross was very much involved with and in litigation with Keith Ranieri, who just got sentenced on Tuesday to 120 years in prison. And uh, Roberta Glass was at the hearing. So if people want to go to True Crime Report and listen to that, that'd be interesting. And Steve Hassan, uh, remember his book. He was in the moons and now he's kind of like a cult uh, deep programmer, I guess you could call it. Does any other anybody have any other questions for Ken? Anything else that uh, about the the book or anything else about Ken's books? Any, you know, so um, 
Yeah, besides books, you could always go to my website and use the contact section to send me an email if you have any particular questions. I mean, that's that's fine that's with me. Good idea. And people, you really are supporting like the continuing authorship and research by buying books straight from the author. So I would highly recommend people go to treefreethinker.com. No middleman. You know, you can talk directly to him, ask questions, and you can follow up about the book if you have any questions of the book while you're reading it, anything like that. Uh, you know, I think I just highly recommend uh, you guys do that. Truefreethinker.com. Yeah, how to be a living guy. I have an interesting story with EA quitting. I was on one of when I was first doing interviews. It's probably like 10 years ago. I think it's Truth Source or Truth Truth Frequency. So I was on there talking about Prophet of Evil, and they actually, without telling me, they just brought this guy on, EA Quitting. He's like a satanic rug cleaner from Utah. And I was like, oh, that's nice. So those people are still around. I can't find that interview, but I was like, I was like on the phone. I was like, what the hell is this? This guy's actually, sorry, just one more thing. EA Quitting is still around, and I think he just did a preamble or like an intro for another occult book, sorry. Is, is rug cleaner uh, common parlance slang? No, no, or it's literally? actual an actual literal rug cleaner. Sorry. Okay, well, I was not you trying gotta to do something. You know, I've got loads so of press probably not here. Well, here's your chance. You've got you've got your author right here. Ephemeral shine. Go ahead. You know, if you've got a question, that's I mean, hopefully on topic. You can. This is your chance. Well, they're saying they got loads of questions, probably not for here. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Go to truefreethinker.com and ask him yeah. first. Uh, before we wrap this up, Ken, was there anything you'd like to add? I mean, I've tried to people to go to your website. Anything else? Any books, projects, upcoming? No, just um, as far as books, within the context of what we're talking about, uh, this is my fourth book, Reviewing Movies. So there's Transhuman Hollywood, and then there's one about uh, Stephen King's It. And then there's one, as we mentioned, about the Alien and Predator franchises. So this one came out, and at the moment, I'm writing a book um, about reviewing movies with uh, alien and UFO themes. So that one's been a lot of fun so far to write. Cool. So again, thanks so much, Ken, me, Freethinker.com. I really appreciate your time and outstanding. Pleasure as another usual. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to end the broadcast, peoples. Let's see. Clean up, blah, blah, blah. Nice. Two free raven, new age shills. Leave it up on your right. Bye, everybody. Thank you. All right. God Good night, everybody. I hope this I hope this uploads to YouTube. It's supposed to, right? It's been when live I on it. YouTube. I was able to see it um, as okay, we went. Well. And it's still live now, by the way. I'm hitting the button. I just hope it ends up. I've had I've had interviews disappear on me, oh. so I'm a little afraid oh. whenever I get ready to hit the button. <laughs> Let's see if it shows up. All right, man. Take care. Have a good night. Thanks okay, again. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. We're still live, though. Oh, we're still live. Yeah. yeah. People are asking questions. Myth broken. Everyone says production problems. Are you are you getting a question? If you want to answer, I can see they're still chatting because it's still uh, going live on YouTube. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, they're gone. Yeah, you're going to have to find you guys. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Bye. All right. I'm going to hit end broadcast. I guess it'll end on YouTube. All right. All right. Good night, everyone. It will. All right. Good night. All right. End the broadcast.